Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talked to Lindy Lederhowski, the co-founder and CEO of Jack a SaaS product that makes it easier for students to write essays and get better grades. It helps to reduce writing anxiety, procrastination, and plagiarism. Lindy is a former teacher and research professor. Before launching Essay Jack, she'd never run a company before, let alone a software business. And when she started out, she had zero technical skills. She didn't even know how to register a website domain. She founded the company with her husband, Ruben, who's a law professor. So neither of the founders had a tech or software background. Yet, they've gone on to build a software product that's now used by over 12,000 students. And their business is generating around $500,000 in annual revenue. It's a great story. In this episode, you'll learn how Lindy overcame her lack of technical skills and experience to turn her idea into a product that she could get into the hands of students. We'll also show you how the two co-founders used a surprisingly simple approach to growing their business and how it's helped them to get to 12,000 active users. And you'll learn how they started selling their product before their website could even handle payments and how they've grown to half a million dollars a year. If you've ever felt like you're being held back or don't have all the skills you need to build and grow your SaaS business, then this story might just give you a little inspiration. I hope you enjoy it. Lindy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Now, I always like to ask my guests what gets them out of bed, what drives and motivates them about their business. Uh, do you have a favorite quote? Or you know, maybe in your own words, just tell us what motivates you about working on your business. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, you know, thanks for asking. I do have a favorite quote, um, and I'll explain. You know how it relates to the business because this is one of my sort of favorite quotes in life, and it's it's a quote from John Milton, the the fellow who wrote Paradise Lost. But in another piece that he wrote, he has this really great line um, that back when I was young, I, I thought I was going to get tattooed on myself, but in the end, I decided I could just sort of hold the quote in my mind. So uh, <laughs> the the quotation is. That which purifies us is trial, and trial is by what is contrary. And that comes from a pamphlet, a speech that Milton gave in defense um, of freedom of press and sort of that idea that um, the truth and knowledge is best earned and best learned in the cut and thrust of disagreement. So it's only by being faced with opposing views or opposing forces that you can kind of clarify your own views. So how that relates to business and to life in general for me is that idea that, you know, that which purifies us is trial and trial is by what is contrary. So it's the things that are difficult um, that are worthwhile and make us better. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, starting a business uh, is difficult, um, but those struggles ultimately make me better. So that's kind of where the inspiration comes from. I'm glad you explained that because when you said it, it went right over my head. <laughs> You know, and that's what happens when you interview a, a professor, right? <laughs> I was going to say, and, they, and then the, the other thing, of course, is like, yes, sure. You know, the, the lady with the PhD in English pulls out this esoteric quote from John Milton. So, I mean, I did have to start off being like the uber nerd. So, you know, that now you're, now you're really knowing what, what motivates me. 
So, so tell us about SA Jack. Um, cool. What's the problem you're trying to solve for who? Uh, and just give us an overview of what the product does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, SA Jack is, as, as I say, it's, um, it's a writing software. SA Jack is a literacy platform. So in its most basic sense, it's an essay drafting tool. So what SA Jack does is it has digitized the drafting process. Uh, drafting in terms of writing. So, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that back in ye olden days when I learned how to write for school, uh, I wrote by pen, you know, on a piece of paper and I had to write an outline for, for my essays. And then I would go to word processing and type it up and, and submit things um, for marks. Uh, and in our world now where many students are digital natives, they aren't going to pen and paper first as part of their writing process. Their writing process begins with a blank word processing screen. And so that drafting, that outlining, that ability to organize one's thoughts for academic writing is a skill that's kind of been lost or it's fading out. And so we really wanted to reintroduce that. And that's what Jack does. Um, to put it another way, it's that missing link between content acquisition and, and writing a final prose. So anybody can do a Google search and find out all kinds of content. Uh, but then how do you get that content into a structured piece of writing? And so we've been focusing on the essay. That's why it's Essay Jack. But we also have all kinds of custom templates for any business proposals, lab reports, abstracts, you know, book reports, um, all kinds of writing that has a typical and generic structure to it. So your users are the students themselves. Um, and uh, I, I believe so you said like the between 13 and 21 years old is kind of like the typical target yeah. user for you. But your customers are either the parents or kind of educational institutions, right? Yeah. So, so SAJAC as a platform, it kind of has two parallel um, business lines running. So, so one is um, really that uh, appeals to and is easy for students to use. The other is the sort of B2B extensive functionality. So teachers and professors uh, when they log in in an institutional context, they have control over the entire SAJAC platform. So, for instance, um, you know, the way that the platform works, we have tips and prompts and sentence starters and all kinds of things to help guide students through their writing process. But if it's an institutional context, if I'm, say, a teacher and uh, in my school we have an SAJAC license, I can go in and I can customize it for my students um, either in a, as a class as a whole or maybe you know, little Johnny or little Susan needs more help or less help, I can create custom templates for individual students with their individual learning needs. So it, it hits at all of those kind of um, students can use it independently, but then we are also working with schools, colleges and universities. And as you said, our, our age range is the 13 to 21. So that's obviously a huge that's a that's a pretty broad uh, swath. And so usually with the middle school and high school students, um, SAJAC is used in an institutional context where teachers will use SAJAC to teach these fundamental writing skills that are part of most um, middle school and high school curricular requirements. So critical thinking, critical writing, all of that. At the college and university level, it's, it is more about being able to support what professors and college instructors are teaching from a content perspective. So if I'm 
a nursing instructor, I don't want to actually have to spend time teaching writing. I want my students to submit writing, uh, but I want them to submit writing that is about nursing. Um, and so SAJAC then comes in and supports in terms of providing that framework for the type of writing that those students uh, will be will be engaged in. Now, I, I alluded to this earlier that, you know, you don't have a typical background of what we'd expect from a SaaS founder or a tech entrepreneur. You've been a teacher and a research professor. So how did you go about, you know, getting into this space? Like, where did the idea for SA Jack come from? Yeah, um, I, I, I joke about this with people who know me, which is I'm, I'm almost this sort of reluctant entrepreneur um, brought into to sort of business kicking and screaming. This wasn't, you know, people ask like, oh, when you were little, did you always want to grow up and have a business or, you know, all this? And I was like, no, not really. I, I liked reading books. And I, I liked writing. And uh, so, you know, as you say, I was a high school English teacher. And then I went on and did a, you know, master's, PhD, postdoc, all, all the rest of it and, and became um, an academic professor. And, and that was sort of where I thought my career was going to go. Uh, and, and it was quite interesting. I had this conversation with my department chair at one point. Um, I had what, what's called in the academy a tenure track job. So you get this sort of first full-time job and you're, you're on the track to tenure. And my chair sort of sat me down and we were you know, sitting and said, oh, you know what, I don't want you to stress about tenure. You've got enough publications. You'll get tenure for sure. And for many, many academics in my situation, that's the most wonderful news you could ever get. And I just had this really sort of um, uncomfortable feeling where I thought, oh, I'm now seeing how my life can unfold for the next 35 years. I know exactly what I'll be doing day in, day out. I know what my salary range is going to be in day in, day out. And there was a degree of stability that came with that, um, that I felt I was too uh, ambitious, uh, is maybe the way to put it, to, to feel comfort- comforted by that stability. And so one of the things already I, I was feeling as I was an academic that, you know, maybe there's more, maybe there's something different. Um, and, and maybe being a full-time academic isn't what I thought it was going to be. So I already had that kind of discontent with being a full-time professor. And then one of the things that really hit home as I was a full-time professor is that I would teach English to these sort of wonderful, bright, motivated, keen students um, but they may not have had the required skills to master academic writing. So, you know, we'd have class and they would say smart things and then they'd hand in essays and their intelligence and insight wasn't always reflected in their written assignments. And I thought, well, uh, you know, the teaching semester is 12 weeks. I'm teaching five novels. I don't have time um, to sort of back up and teach those things that they're, they're maybe missing. And I thought, well, you know what? you know, technology can fill this gap. Technology is this great equalizer. You know, students shouldn't be penalized by the time they get to post-secondary education because, you know, maybe luck of the draw, they didn't, you know, master those skills earlier on. Maybe they're from an international context where the things that they were trained in is different than what we would expect in, in the sort of Anglo-American academic context. So that's that's kind of the genesis. And I thought, well, you know what, let's sit down and see if we can't develop technology to sort of answer this question around academic writing. I mean, uh, I think in the US, businesses spend something like $3 billion a year in writing remediation for people once they've already graduated universities and are at work. Like this problem of sort of an inability to write successfully is a, is a really huge problem. And I felt a bit devastated 
um, sort of participating in it just as a professor. And I thought, that, well, there's more that I can do for sure. Okay, so you sort of see this need mm-hmm. um, that you know something that technology can help your students with, um, but how does an English teacher and professor go about kind of turning that into a product? Like, <laughs> what did you yes. do? Uh, so that's that's basically the million dollar question. So so uh, you know yeah, it, you you you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the summary is okay. Great, I've identified this problem, this thing that I want to create. Um, and so really, uh, my co-founder, who also happens to be my husband, he and I, and he's a law professor. Um, now he's sort of being pulled full time into SA Jack as well. But at the time, uh, he was on sabbatical and we really were working together and, and quite literally cutting out pieces of paper and moving it around on a desk sort of to sort of uh, map out what a technical workflow could be for this product we hadn't yet even sort of thought through. Um, we didn't have a name for it yet or anything like that, but we were just sort of thinking, okay, if we were to build essay writing software, what would it do? How would it function? Um, what are the kind of principles that we would want to adhere to as um, professors? So we're not interested in the you know essay mill um, industry where students are paying somebody else to write for them and, and plagiarizing and, and really... I'm doing a disservice for themselves. So we thought, okay, let's let's kind of figure out what this would be. And then we ended up having a meeting with uh, the fellow who who ended up being the prototype developer for us, um, who built the early iteration of SA Jack. And we sort of met at this restaurant and I sort of had a, a PowerPoint and some, you know, as I say, cut out pieces of paper and I sort of walked him through what this product was supposed to do. And he said, okay, okay, I think you know, I, I kind of get what you're, what you're talking about. I'll, I'll go away and see what I can pull together. So he did a really basic, um, proof of concept for SA Jack in about, I think it was four weeks. And then he came back and we were sitting in our apartment and he opened the laptop and sort of walked us through it. And we just sort of sat there and said, Oh my gosh, it works. I mean, it works the way we, we wanted it to. And it was this really, magical moment to see something which was just an idea in your head um, appear in real life on a computer that you could interact with and and play with. And so uh, then we had the question of, oh, okay, great. You know, it works for us. But yeah, of course it works for us. It came out of our head. We now need to get it in front of some people. So we went down to um, a high school, a very good international school and, and got in front of some of the IB students for our very first test. And we basically walked in, gave them access to Essay Jack, and asked them to write an in-class essay. We gave them no instruction on how to use Essay Jack, what it was, what it was supposed to do. We just wanted to sort of see if, in the absence of anything else, they could sit there for 90 minutes with our platform and write an in-class essay. Uh, and they loved it. They ended up sort of walking out of the class being like, that was way more fun than writing an in-class essay. And their teacher was saying, no, 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 you just wrote an in-class essay. And so that gave us the courage to kind of keep going and, and testing and refining and go from there. How kind of involved were you in that process? Was it just like he just came back after four weeks and said, here's the product or was there a lot of back and forth? Yes. So that first time, that first, you know, from meeting for dinner and, and showing him, you know, cut up pieces of paper and a broad sort of description of what it is that we wanted that was he sort of went away and then came back and 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 showed us what we wanted then it became um very involved and sort of every 
you know, I, I now again, I, I look back on it, and, you know, cringe for the poor guy, because basically every five minutes, I was like, okay, now can it do this? Can it do this? How does it do this? How do we, you know, things like registering domain names and uh, like just all of those sorts of things, which now are um, core and easy parts of any technology business at the time I knew nothing about. And so this guy was sort of roped into being sort of my, my go-to it guy. And and I mean, obviously it was, uh, you know, fee for service, he was paid. Um, but it was, it became quite involved where it was like, okay, so now, now SA Jack needs to do this or, Oh, we need to add this or it's not doing this or, you know, and, and we really sort of were trying to refine it for those first few months when we had that early proof of concept. Okay. So you've got the product, you, you kind of get it in front of some students, you get positive feedback. What did you do next? So we then, uh, we had uh, a friend and colleague who um, at the time worked for IBM. So we gave him access to the code base because, again, we knew nothing about code. But what we did know was the academy, which is shaped by peer review. And so you always get experts to look at your research and to, to sort of weigh in. So we sort of took that principle and said, okay, well, let's get peer review or code review um, of, of what's been what's been written so far, uh, because we're not the ones to be able to analyze whether or not this code is, is spaghetti or, or what. So we had our friends sort of look at the code and make some recommendations, give us a degree of confidence um, that the developer we were working with was not, um, not insane, you know, wasn't, wasn't building something that was utterly and completely unsustainable, even though at this time it was, it was still always understood to just be sort of a proof of concept and a prototype. But we went and did a number of other testing scenarios. So with that early, we call it the SA Jack Alpha, but it was really our, our early prototype. We tested it with, uh, in total, it was over 200 students and about uh, 10 different um, teachers and professors and in a variety of different contexts. So it was grade 8s, grade 11s, grade 12s, and then it was five different university classes. There was a business ethics class, a Victorian literature class, a writing class, a history class. Um, so to try to really get um, use case data from all of these different um, uh, student profiles, but also the instructor profiles. So what is it that the teachers and the professors really wanted to see? Because we knew that our greatest asset um, as an ed tech company, or at this time, we didn't even really know we were going to be an ed tech company, but as an ed tech product builder, uh, we knew our greatest asset was the fact that that we ourselves were scholars. We knew what the expectations were of scholarly writing. Uh, we knew what people are looking for. We know the pedagogy behind composition and writing and all of that. And so we wanted to ensure that we had that buy-in from institutions because we realized that's, that's going to be our, our best and easiest way in to this industry that at that time we knew nothing about. Um, and so a lot of the early feedback on that prototype, both from the students and the instructors, um, informed what then became um, the beta product, which we uh, allowed um, out much, uh, much more broadly from that early prototype. As I say, the early prototype had just over 200 student testers. Uh, whereas the beta product, you know, had had over two thousand um, users, most of whom were paying. How, how did you get access to those first two hundred students? Like, how how do you walk into a school, and you know, or college, and just say, hey, you know, can we get your students using this product? And 
it's not fully baked. Um, not sure if it really works, but um, let's take some of the teacher's time and the student's time and, and test this out. Uh, so basically, that's exactly what we did. We sort of walked in and said, hey, we've got this thing. Can we show, can, can we show your, your students? Um, to be honest, uh, there were a couple of different ways in. Um, so with this, this school that we worked with, this very good IB school. Uh, so we knew people in the school. So obviously, there was the relationship equity at play. Um, this is also where, you know, I'm uh, to this day, I'm a member of the Ontario College of Teachers. So I'm, I'm a qualified and registered high school teacher. I was a high school teacher. So the degree of confidence of um, putting me in front of a classroom is one that, that the teachers had. So I wasn't an ed tech salesperson. I was a person who could teach literature. And so the value proposition as well was, you know, in many cases, it was not only about the product, but it was about, you know, I can come in and I can um, provide a demo of the tool, which also doubles as a bit of a writing instruction for your students. And so that was one of the value propositions at the beginning. But as well, the first thing before any student uh, saw SA Jack was all of the teacher's um, the administrators, the vice principals, the principals, we had to do the demo and get their buy-in as well. They had to be excited by, by SA Jack. And they were, and at, and at every step of the way, um, instructors absolutely see the value of SA Jack. So we really do speak their language. And I think that's partly being an insider um, as, as an educator. So to go back to your, you know, one of your first questions about like, basically how does, how does somebody go from from being, you know, an, uh, you know, an educator to being an ed tech entrepreneur. And I think this is one of those sort of key moments where having a foot in both camps was really helpful. So for instance, when we wanted to test the prototype at the University of Toronto, which is, you know, one of the top ranked universities in the world, and we sort of went in and thought, oh, we'll show it to, that's where I did my PhD. So I thought, oh, well, we'll show it to some of the professors we know. Um, and we quickly were sort of, um, uh, elevated up to, I think it was the vice dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at the University of Toronto is the largest faculty of its kind, I think, in North America. And immediately the the vice dean said, you know, yeah, this is great. Let's let's do a pilot. Let's get this in some classes uh, and see what students and teachers have to say. As well, when I was doing my PhD at the University of Toronto, I taught writing uh, at one of the suburban campuses, the University of Toronto Scarborough, and the woman who had taken over um, the writing center at that campus, I had known from back when I used to teach there. And so when I approached her and said, hey, can I sort of show this to some of your writing instructors and see what they have to say, see what they think, get their feedback, uh, she was really open and amenable to that. So again, that's my long-winded way of saying, um, you know, relationship equity uh, goes really far. And so being able to sort of use your networks um, and rely and lean on those networks is, in my experience, really, really helpful. Okay. So, so it's one thing to go into a school or college and do what you just said and get a few hundred students using your product for free. It's another thing to get what you said was like the next 2,000 students paying for it. So how, how did you go about starting to charge for the product? Yeah. So um, with those 200 students, so that was sort of 2014, 2015, when we were sort of playing around with this er early prototype. Um, by 2015, we were sort of committed to taking all of that feedback and building what, what became the SA Jack beta product. And so that product, we were ready to sort of launch in the market 
September 1st, 2015. When I say ready to launch in the market, uh, that sounds a lot um, uh, more serious than, than it actually was. We basically had a product and we thought, okay, let's go see if somebody's going to pay for it. Um, again, one of our, our friends and colleagues who we had met along the way um, headed up uh, an education technology company that is one he's now just recently sold it, I think for something like 66 million. So he's done quite well for himself. Um, but it was a distributor of um, a variety of Microsoft products to post-secondary education students. So we had shown him the early SAJAC just to sort of get his insight on the industry. And he had said, so the most important thing you have to do is see if somebody's going to pay for this. Um, and so pick a price, whatever that price is going to be. But the sooner you know whether people will open their wallets for this product, the sooner you know that you have a business or at least business potential. So that was one of those sort of key insights that we really took to heart. And so with one of the early schools that we went to um, just before launching in twenty summer of 2015, and we demoed to the teachers and sort of got their buy-in, they were really excited. Um, and then we just picked a price for all, I think it was all of the grade 10 students to have access to SAJAC for a full year and the teachers. And um, we sort of gave them the demo and the price in the morning. By the afternoon, they called and said, yep, they were ready to go. And they issued us a check. Uh, it has never been that fast since, but, but that certainly, um, gave, again, gave us that confidence to go and um, assert a price for the product. And then similarly, whenever we would go and demo that, that beta product to schools and, and colleges and teachers, they immediately said, okay, how much is it? And so they, their expectation already was that this was a for-pay product. And so that, again, sort of helped us when we um, opened up the pay gateways just for individual students to sign up and subscribe. Um, I think we had those pay gateways done by maybe September 3rd, 2015. Uh, within three weeks, we had our first sort of individual paying user uh, who, who signed up and opened her wallet and pulled out her credit card. Okay, there's a few things to unpack here. So cool. let me take a stab at yeah. doing that. So firstly, how did you come up with the price? What was the process you went through? Yes. So pricing, and to be honest, we still do change some of our, I mean, there are, there are a variety of different sort of uh, pricing models out there that even we em employ. So in bulk licenses, we have reduced prices versus an individual student subscriber. But how we hit on a price at the beginning, um, we really used as a principle that SAJAC in many ways is like a writing textbook on steroids. It's interactive. It's built by experts. Uh, it can be used for writing across multiple disciplines. And so we looked at various writing textbooks and set our price based on that. So we said, well, if, you know, if on average university students are spending $600 a year on textbooks um, and, you know, breaks down into different courses and all the rest, but we looked at various, you know, sort of textbook prices and we thought, okay, so somewhere within 60 to $100 per year is a kind of textbook price. So let's price it as a textbook and see what happens. Okay, got it. That makes sense. Um, now, you, you kind of, I think you struck it lucky in terms of the, you know, telling them the price in the morning and, yeah. and getting a, a check that quickly. My experience from talking to people who've built or tried to build sort of, you know, education tech companies 
one of the common things I often hear is how difficult it is to get money, to get paid. Uh, it could just be because, you know, if you try and charge individual teachers, they don't necessarily, you know, have a lot of money to, to start, you know, buying these products. Um, schools have budgets to work within. Um, going to a school district is kind of even tougher because then you have to, you know, think about the needs of, you know, dozens, if not more, you know, hundreds of schools. Um, has that been your experience? Was this, you, you, I think you alluded to that. You said, you know, hey, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as easy after that. But what's your experience been in terms of working with uh, educational institutions and, and kind of getting paid? Yeah, so educational institutions, and as you've alluded to, um, it's a really interesting industry because the people who experience the pain point, so instructors who are teaching writing or have expectations of writing assignments and the students themselves who are writing are not really the ones who pay. They're not really the ones who make the budgeting decision. And so it's quite odd in the sense that you can have um, teachers who immediately get it and go, oh my gosh, I want this and I want this for my students. And the students can see it and go, oh my gosh, this is going to change my life and, and all the rest. Um, but then it's, it, you know, somebody else uh, is in charge of budget allocation and those buckets of money. Um, so we've, and we've understood that from the get-go. It's been one of the kind of interesting dynamics that um, we've all always known that our product speaks to those people who aren't the ones who pay. And so we sort of knew that that was a, something that we had to navigate. Um, and so we've navigated it in a couple of different ways. So firstly, um, price sensitivity is one of the key things that we identified and wanted to keep our price as low as possible, particularly in a bulk license context so that it would fall within the budgetary envelope that many, say, departments or teachers themselves would be able to access. So to keep that price low, so it's not something that needs to go through various different budgetary committees was one uh, way of addressing that. Uh, secondly, was certainly by offering sort of a, a pilot or a free trial. So get in, get teachers and students using SAJAC, so that then when you have to go and make that budgetary um, argument or have that budgetary conversation with those who, who do um, manage the departmental or institution-wide wallet, so to speak, that you've got real data from that institution. So you can say, okay, not only does SAJAC reduce writing anxiety and improve writing outcomes and all that at all of these other schools, but here's what's happening at your school. Uh, and so that was another way of sort of um, partnering with the, the sort of teachers and students, the professors, and getting that buy-in. And then the third and probably the most successful way for us, because again, you know, we're this teeny tiny, you know, essay jack that's run by some passionate educators uh, who are sort of figuring things out along the way. What we did very early on was partner with um, educational distributors. So in Canada, we um, have a distribution agreement and partnership with Nelson. So Nelson is one of Canada's oldest and most sort of reputable um, textbook sellers. That's what they originally uh, made their made their mark in. And now, of course, Nelson, like many other textbook sellers, have moved into the digital space. But what they have is they've got a sales team across the country who already has the relationship equity um, and the contacts 
in all of the schools, colleges, and universities. And so if somebody's been selling, you know, a professor, a textbook for 20 years, and then this year they show up and say, okay, well, how about instead of buying this writing textbook, you suggest Essay Jack to your students this year? Um, it was a much easier way in uh, than we as sort of an unknown entity once we had gone to sort of the end of the line with everybody we knew, um, it, we were able to sort of piggyback with those educational resellers. And so we now have distribution partners in other regions and we're always looking for more. So that's, again, we've got that, that kind of three, three ways. One is, you know, to make sure that we're aware of price sensitivity, keep our prices low. Two is to work with the institutions to help them navigate those budgetary cycles uh, if need be and work in a way that works for them. And then three is to work with partners who, who know what they're doing. Okay. And, and so currently, I think you have about 12,000 active users. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And what I think is, is really fascinating here is that you built the product, you got it out there and you started charging for it and getting paid before it was even possible to accept payments yeah. <laughs> on your website, yes. right? Yes. Lovely. Love yeah. That. I mean, that's, uh, and, and I can back up a bit. So our, that, that early prototype developer, the sort of fellow who, who sort of had the growing pains with us, who made the alpha essay jack. So that was, uh, we were, I can back up at the time. So we were in Malaysia at the time um, while my husband was on sabbatical. That was where that sort of early work was happening. And then we were back in Canada to build you know, uh, what we envisioned to be this beta product on the back of all of the feedback we had, we had received from those early, you know, users and instructors. Um, and so we actually had that guy come and live in our guest room for four months. Um, and we worked with a, an outsourced development firm in Ottawa. Um, and, and so he and then this firm and I, we, you know, he lived in our house. He and I went to this firm you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday, then came home, you know, lived in the same house and everything like that uh, through the build process of, of the SAJAC beta platform. Then just before we went to launch um, in, in September 2015, you know, there had been some delays as there always are in software developments. There were a few delays. And at this time point, he was basically sick of living in our guest room. And he was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm out, I'm going, you know, backpacking in, on the John Muir Trail in California. I'm going dark, I will not have Wi-Fi access, it's going to be me and a, and a backpack. And I thought, oh my God. Uh, so of course, I had a, a, a bit of a breakdown, but we sort of found some, again, some sort of random tech guy just ultimately to just do a Stripe integration, you know, because we just thought, well, we have this product. We've now had this experience where we've gone and demoed it at this one school and they're willing to write a check. You know, there's this other school that we're now in the sales process with and they're willing to write a check. So if people are willing to write checks at the institutional level, and that's all great, we can invoice them and they can write checks. But we also then need people to be able to come to the website and pay. Uh, so we, again, as I say, we just sort of found some guy and we're like, hey, can you do a Stripe integration so we can at least accept payment? Um, and that was, you know, while we already had the product in the market and we were sort of pretending as though it was good to go and, and everything was fantastic when in fact we had sort of no tech, no way of accepting payment and, and we're just really kind of hanging on by the skin of our teeth. So let me be clear, you, you, you took this guy who was in Malaysia? Yeah. 
Yeah. And got him to fly over and live in your house for four months yes. to help you build this yes. product. Yes, I am not even kidding. We had a guy living in from Malaysia. We bought him a flight. We put him in our guest room. I was cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then working with him at this, uh, you know, at this outsourced um, uh, software development firm, so that we could bring the vision of SA Jack to fruition. Wow. Yeah. And we're still friends. We we still, you know, we we had dinner with him last time we were in Malaysia. So we haven't, you know, there there have definitely been some, you know, tough moments along the way. But uh, but he didn't kill us, and we didn't kill him. Okay, so you've got a product now, which is, um, you've got a way to make money uh, in terms of accepting payments. Um, you've kind of proved the concept. There are kind of these educational institutions are willing to pay you and write checks. Um, I'm kind of curious, like how did you go from the first 200 students to kind of go and test this thing to where you are now with 12,000 users? Like what did you do to market the business? You know, I, I, I wish that I could say uh, something really smart at this point and, and have a really fantastic sort of marketing plan and strategy, but uh, but that would be a lie. Um, we did more of what we, we had already been doing, which is we would go into classes, we would demo the product. And then after, say, doing a, a writing workshop or a demo in a university class, we would usually have about anywhere from 35 to 65% of the students who were in that class would then go and sign up uh, and start paying for SA Jack themselves. So again, that was um, sort of really encouraging in terms of um, seeing that we had a product that worked for students and they liked what they saw and they would sign up and they would pay for it. Uh, but there were sort of two hiccups with that. One uh, is obviously it's unsustainable. There's only so many classes in the world you can you can go around and, and show your product to. Uh, and the whole point of developing a software like SA Jack was that we wanted to be able to reach and help as many students as possible. And so me running around uh, kind of defeated that purpose. The second problem, of course, is that um, as a researcher, I am always acutely aware of the kind of variables that can um, corrupt your data. And so one of the things that we began to worry about is what if... Um, what if what is successful is Lindy doing writing workshops and SA Jack is just this kind of nifty um, teaching aid that helps her do what she's doing and SA Jack itself isn't really what, what people are being drawn to. That started to be a bit of a question in that first sort of fall of 2015 that we, we thought we needed to answer. So we had applied for SA Jack to be considered for an English language teaching award in the digital innovation category. Uh, run by the British Council in Cambridge English. So they're kind of the world's leading experts on English language teaching and English language learning. And so we thought, okay, well, let's, let's again, let's get some sort of peer review. Let's see what other experts think of this tool. So the um, application for that award was quite involved. We had to do a sort of written application. What's the pedagogy behind the tool? And then it went through. And so we passed through that round and then it went to the next round where it was tested by a pool of um, sort of blind judges who just sort of went in and played with the product. Uh, and so that, so that was uh, six months after launching that shaky beta product and sort of going into classes and doing workshops and, and having students sign on. And again, we were getting, you know, probably about 100 new users per month uh, through that process. 
then by the spring of 2016, uh, the British Council on Cambridge English named us as a finalist for this award. So we're the only Canadian company that was a finalist. The Elton's is what it's called, uh, the Elton's Award uh, for Digital Innovation. And uh, we were one of five companies in our category. Sadly, we didn't win, but even just being a finalist ended up uh getting us a lot of earned media and attention. And so that, again, helped us to grow from sort of prototype testers of 200 to by the end of that first school year, 2015, 2016, I think we had something like 1,200 students. Again, slow growth, but that was sort of no marketing. That was word of mouth. That was kind of running around. We still, at that point, considered ourselves to be building the product. I mean, we had we were still bootstrapping. We had you know, no tech team, no marketing team, no, I was working for free and my co-founder still had his full-time job as a professor. Um, But we were already starting to get that earned media and getting buzz for a product that didn't yet exist in in any other um, field. And, you know, we had not only invented a product, but we sort of invented a product category. Uh, And so that itself got people quite intrigued. Let's talk about finances and money. Revenue-wise, I know you guys are doing over, what, half a million a year? Yeah, that's usually um, sort of where where we land. Um, and, and a lot of that as well, we've got, um, as I say, we've got some distribution partnerships and they have projected sales values. And so we're not yet at the end of the, you know, at the end of the year to sort of know whether or not they hit their targets. And you bootstrapped the business for the first couple of years yeah. um, in terms of being self-funded. And I guess you raised, a, you did a friends and family round last year. Yeah. How much did you raise with that? Yeah. So by, by 2017, you know, we had sort of over, I think it was 2,500 users. And we really, at that point, um, knew much more about sort of tech, the technology and what we really wanted to build. And so we had some of those legacy code issues from our early development that we were now in a position to remediate. And so we actually finally got like UX and UI designers and, and feedback and technology. So we thought, okay, this is the time to go to our friends and family and say, uh, you know, these are the awards that we've been shortlisted for. This is the user growth we've seen. This is, you know, the potential of the market. Now let's um, give you the opportunity to participate and, and show your support. And so in 2017, we raised 500,000 and, and the lion's share of that went into um, essentially rebuilding the SAJAC platform. So it's now entirely customizable. It is, it looks new, it is robust, it is bug free, it is, you know, all of those things that we, we always wanted it to be. Uh, and now we've got that. So beyond the overcoming the technical kind of learning curve and, and sort of all that comes with that, what what else have been some of the big mistakes that you look back and and some some lessons you've learned from the experience? So so certainly number one is of course that that technical hurdle, and I think you know that's that's a hurdle that will will continue to to work to overcome. Uh, as I say, we now have great technical partner, but you know there are things that I I wish I could do better from a technical perspective. But the second and probably most important one, and we've sort of danced around it a bit in terms of talking about finances, but finances is really the biggest piece and the, and the lesson that I wish I had learned. You know, I, I want to blame somebody else, but I, I have to own this one myself, which is uh, when we first began and we started to try to see, okay, well, here's the product we're envisioning 
once we have that prototype, you know, what's it going to cost? What are some of the estimates? And it was really hard to get somebody to pin down and really tell us what that was going to look like. Um, and so at the beginning, people were like, oh, okay, it's going to be, you know, $200,000, you know, four months, you can build this or whatever. And then we thought, well, so we can run around and get investment at this point. But, you know, then we're already diluted. We're already, you know, we don't even yet know if anybody wants this product. So, you know, perhaps that's um, a risk we can take on ourselves. We'll, we'll invest in ourselves first, take on that risk. And, you know, and, and, and we did, and I'm happy that we did that, but I think I would have started thinking about investment and the kinds of things that investors are looking for much earlier, because I was really focused on let's build the best product. And I think I had that kind of naive, if we build it, they will come mentality. And so I was like, let's get it right. We want it validated. We want the tests. We want the testimonials. We want everybody to, who uses it to like it. Uh, and we did all of that, um, but then we weren't really focused on telling that story um, to an investor audience, sort of getting interest by those who would then share our vision. And so now that we get to the point where we have all of these opportunities for growth and we don't have the capacity to pursue them all, uh, that we now have to run around and sort of say, oh my gosh, now we've got to really start thinking about courting investors. And that's one thing that I wish we had started earlier. Uh, so I would say to anybody who is listening to this, who's starting a business, start thinking about that investment piece a lot earlier. How big is the team now? Uh, so our actual SAJAC team is about four people. And then we've got, because uh, again, we've really focused on having the right partners and a lean team. Our actual team, so every Friday I send out an internal team update and that goes to over 30 people. So that's our developers, our designers, our PR consultants, um, our tech team, um, and, and anybody else who, who is working on, on SAJAC. Also now that includes a handful of our investors, friends and family investors. So if, if somebody's listening to this, they're non-technical and they're kind of thinking about sort of a similar approach to um, kind of working with different companies or vendors to kind of supplement what they're doing. What advice would you give them? Like, what what do you look for now to make sure that you're partnering with the right people? So the number one thing that we look for is the process. So what is that process going to be? So obviously, if we're talking about technical design but or technical development, but this also works for design, you know, everybody will talk about, you know, agile process and then but then you want to sort of really dig in and say okay so what does that look like so what is you know are you having weekly scrums what does that look like what do you talk about in your scrums if you're having daily stand-ups how do those work what do you talk about in your daily stand-ups what project management tools are you using what are the expectations you have if you're using slack for communication is that slack every day is that slack every day at 9 a.m you know those kinds of uh, process oriented questions will probably um, let you see whether or not the team that you're wanting to work with is going to work with you the way you need them to work or not. And if you get that process ironed out well, and again, you've got sort of third-party software so you can you know, have oversight uh, as, the, as the entrepreneur and you can sort of go in and see what people are doing on the various different platforms that are uh, necessary to your business and, they, and you have transparency and the expectations are very clear I think then it can work out really well. So, so number one is get the process right, whatever that process is going to be for you. And that 
is going to give you as the entrepreneur comfort that you have the information you need. Um, two is the transparency piece so that there should be no questions about who's doing what and where and everybody needs to sort of be on the same page. Um, three is certainly that openness of communication. If you can communicate well together, um, then even if things go wrong, you'll probably be able to sort of uh, pick up that ball and continue to run with it. If somehow, for whatever the reason, and sometimes it's just different communication styles or whatever, but if if there's some sort of breakdown in the communication between the entrepreneur and the people he or she works with, um, you know, then then sometimes you just have to stop that relationship and because it's you're not going to be able to get it back on track. Great advice. Love that. Okay. All right, let's get on to the lightning round. It's, I'm going to give you seven quick fire questions. Uh, just try to answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? All righty. Uh, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received? Hire slow, fire fast. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Um, Born to Run. It, is, uh, it focuses on how integral running is to brain development and sort of human thought process. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Uh, very thick skin uh, and the ability to take feedback and not necessarily take it personally. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Um, so the, my favorite productivity tool is Slack. I, I use that with all of our teams. It allows for communication with teams simultaneously. Um, I think it's really effective, much more effective than email. What's a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time? Well, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'd, I'd actually, I'd really love to start a school. I have a number of different sort of school um, options that I'd like to, to start, um, whether it's a sports school, um, an academic girls school, uh, a more sort of Greek style athletics and academic academy, but I'd love to start a school. Cool. Uh, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Uh, so one thing that people may not know is that all of my siblings, uh, all of our names start with L, Leah, Lindy, Lane, and Laurel. And my dad's name is Leo. That's a lot of L's. It is. <laughs> uh, and finally, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? Uh, reading and writing. I uh, Hands down, I read anywhere from sort of four to 10 novels per week, and I'm always writing um, academic articles, novels, you know, everything. Wow. Lindy, thank you for uh, joining me, sharing the story of SA Jack. Um, it's, it's been really interesting to kind of hear your kind of journey from, you know, being a, a research professor and a teacher into becoming a tech entrepreneur and and sort of what you've learned from that experience. Um, if people want to find out more about SA Jack, they can go to sajack.com. That's S A as in E S S A Y, jack.com. Um, and if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, so, probably uh, Twitter is the easiest. So, Dr. Lindy, um, that's also how you can get me on Instagram. Um, those are some of the easiest ways, if I don't know you, to just drop me a line. Great. I'll include that in the show notes so people can get hold of those. Perfect. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, and I, I wish you all the best with SA Jack. Thanks so much, Omar. This is really great to get to talk to you this afternoon. Cheers.